Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. hey what is going on, all things beer listeners? Here we are back again to discuss and taste through another beer style, and one that I would almost consider an endangered species. Well, you know, the last couple of months we did IPAs and Irish stouts, and we felt we were getting a little too close to the mainstream, so we thought we'd get off-road and go into the backcountry of beer for a little less love style, probably. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a style that I love, and it's getting harder to get a brown ale these days at any brewery, so much so that we invited a really special guest from the home brewing world, member of Sods, even wearing a Sods brewer shirt, Jim Suddeth. What's going on? Oh, not much. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, we're excited to have you on. You know, we knew that you knew about brown ales. We're Mm going to get into it a little bit later, your excellent Jim's Brown Ale, but tell the listeners who might not go to a Sods meeting or have run into you around town here in Columbus, what's your background? How long have you been homebrewing, Jim? I actually did my first batch of beer in 1990, so I've been brewing for over 32 years. For many years, I just did you know extract batches, and then it was probably not until, geez, I don't even know when, that I stumbled upon the Sods group, became a member, and uh, started doing all-grain brewing, that kind of stuff. And for those that may not know, Sods is Scioto Owen Tangi Darby Zimmergis. Correct. And that's a homebrew club here in our local town, Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, we probably have 120 members. You know, not all of them come to the meetings every month. We meet once a month during kind of the cold season. Every third Thursday, we'll get 40, 50 guys. Of course, you know, COVID kind of affected that a lot. It's always a great time. You know, we go from brewery to brewery, depending on who will have us on a Monday evening, you know, whether they're they're open or not. You know, we'll have some kind of discussion topic and um, basic social gathering. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And if you're a home brewer out there that hasn't heard of it, you know, they're on social media. That's a great way they flow information. So just search it up there. Also on the website, is that sods.org? Yep, yes. I thought so. Yeah, it's a great organization. I'm also a member, and I go as often as I can. And Mark, you are a former member of Sods. Yeah, I mean, I'm not opposed to being a member. I actually don't homebrew a lot these days, unless, of course, helping out my friend Patrick here on the podcast. Did the newsletter for a few years and uh, was pretty active for a while in Sods as well, Mm -hmm. especially when I was real interested in entering competitions, judging competitions, you know, competitions is why you're sitting here, Jim, on this brown ale topic. Yeah. So why don't you go ahead and tell about the Barley's Homebrew Competition. It was the 24th annual homebrew competition that Barley's puts on every year. It was 2019. I entered a brown ale, English brown, and happened to be fortunate enough to hear my name called last. After hearing several of uh, the people that I know, friends of mine, Third, second, I assumed that I would not be called, but Angelo mentioned my name as the winner of the 2019 homebrew competition for Barley's. Well, and we should say at this point in time, you are the longest reigning Barley's <laughs> homebrew competition winner yeah, of all yeah. time, Unfortunately, right? 2019 was the last time they had the competition, <laughs> so it's been a couple years that I get a 
hold that distinction. I can also say, having looked through the roles of all of the winners of this contest, that yours is the first brown ale to come out on top. Yeah, apparently so. I think that's a great reason for a podcast because also the Barley's Homebrew Competition is going to be coming up, judging in late May. We'll get into that a little bit later in the show. Why don't we now shift gears a little bit and focus on like, what is a brown ale? There's lots of brown beers. Brown beers have been around for as long, really, as people have been brewing. Does that mean every beer that's brown is a brown ale? Not all of them are. I mean, it kind of originated in the UK, in and around the London area with Mans, correct? Yeah. I would say that the origins of the modern brown ale are not wildly different from the milk stout. You know, A couple episodes ago, we talked about sweet stouts and milk stouts and the London brown ale kind of were born around the same time and started to have some popularity. But as time has gone on, there's a little bit of a divergence of different British brown ales. And by divergence, you mean it moved north. That's right, and changed a little bit. So if we talk about the London brown ale that Mann's made, which debuted in 1902, that's going to be a very low ABV, pretty sweet beer. I've got some statistics here from... Ron Pattinson's website, Shut Up About Barkley Perkins, about the man's ale in the mid-50s. And at that point in time, you know, the original gravity was 1035, and the final gravity was 1013. So that's an ABV of only 2.9% and an attenuation of 63%. So pretty sweet and pretty weak. I think also maybe as we go to the north, we'll find that the north made it a little lighter in color a little more caramel focus, and also a more alcoholic beverage. Yeah, that's right. The northern brown ale, as far as I can tell, traced back to a beer that still exists today, one that we're going to try on this show, and that is the Newcastle brown ale, which came out in the late 1920s. That would be, you know, the original gravity of about 1049 and a final gravity of 1010. So that's going to give you 5% ABV, and 80% attenuation. So a lot less sweet and almost twice as strong. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we'll get into Newcastle Brown Ale a lot more while we're drinking it later. Maybe just a couple more things to say from a stylistic point of view. If you think about the BJCP guidelines and you look at it, one of the categories is British Brown Ales. So there's actually a whole category. And then there are three of those. Obviously, the Brown Ale we're talking about today, but then also the Dark Mild, and the English Porter. Yeah, those are British brown beer. That's okay. British brown beer, not to be confused <laughs> with British brown ale, although they are all ales. So what's the difference then, Jim, between the dark mild, the porter, and the British brown? The dark mild is going to be more of a session-style beer that is brown, obviously, but um, doesn't have the ABV that um, going up to the next 13B category, which is British brown beer, is going to have probably an original gravity up to about 1050. So considerably stronger, probably up to close to 6%. And then after that, you get to the English Porter, which is going to be a darker beer. It's going to have probably a little more of a roasty character and going to be a little bit stronger. Yeah, I think when you talk about the British versions of these beers, to me anyway, that roasty character, that coffee, chocolate kind of roastiness is... Once you have very much of that, you're in porter territory to me, and you've kind of left the world of the, the English brown ale. Yeah. Well, we should um, 
crack a beer, I think. Absolutely. And we're going to go to, uh, now where's TechCaster located? If I'm going from north to south now, I'm halfway in between London and Newcastle. Yeah, Tadcaster is located in South Yorkshire. Okay. And the the nearest big city would be Leeds. I think it's about 12 miles from Leeds, so not very far from Leeds. So if you were in the car or on the train, you know, York is going to be closer to Newcastle than London. But I don't know. From London, I'm going to say you're 60% of the way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little bit more north. And people in England would definitely consider Yorkshire to be the north. Sam Smith's is a brewery we've talked about multiple times on this podcast at different episodes because, you know, they imported pretty early on in, you know, the 1980s and the 1990s and were pretty influential, I think, in the American craft beer movement. How would you describe this beer to the listeners? It's a bit nutty. It does have a kind of a nut character to it. Although, you know, I'm assured from the website and everything, there are no nuts used in the making of this beer. So that's just coming from the malts. One of the things that I would note on the taste is, you know, in addition to that nut flavor, there's quite a bit of fruity esters from the yeast here, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, and it finishes uh, very dry, not sweet really at all. Well, I'm seeing here that the final gravity is 1012 on this. Okay. So, you know, that's Kind of medium. Yeah. Yeah. I would say medium is a good way to put that. Not super dry, but on the other hand, not going to be really sweet and malty. Mm -hmm. Sam Smith's is famous for a couple of things. One of the things that they're known for is the Yorkshire squares. Uh, And that's kind of a a cool thing in the brewing world. Do you guys know about the Yorkshire squares? I do indeed. I'd like to hear your explanation. (laughs) Well... Um, I have been to several of the breweries in Yorkshire. I haven't been to Samuel Smith's, I have to say, but I've been to, say, Black Sheep or Theakston's. And at all of those breweries, it's open fermentation. So the fermenter's open. You know, there's not a closed fermenter. And there's a big, frothy krausen of yeast on top of it. And one of the things about the open fermentation is, A, because you're not trapping in the carbon dioxide, the yeast is more expressive. And then B, it's also quite easy to, you know, top crop or skim yeah. the yeast off the top. I know when we were at Black Sheep, actually, Mark, you were with me on yeah. it. They said, well, you know, sometimes we rouse the yeast and they pump the yeast up from the bottom and spray it out over the top. And they said, well, it's always a great moment when this happens. Jim, if you've, you've not been to Black Sheep. I have not. When you're walking, you're kind of on like a catwalk, like yeah. an industrial yeah. catwalk over these. And at one point, Pat looked down I thought his glasses were going in. So I'm actually surprised they let you in that room. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the fact that they, you know, rouse the yeast in that way speaks to how flocculent these yeasts are and, Mm -hmm. you know, how clear this beer is. And that also yeasts that are flocculent typically are not quite as attenuative. So they leave a little bit more malt behind. What about contamination? Like Mark said, your glasses could have fell in there. And does that ruin ruin a whole batch? But um I think because they're so actively fermenting, you know, most of that bacteria that might infect it kind of sort of gets blown away, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, they are in rooms that are, I won't say sealed off, but, you know, there's doors and everything. They're not open to the rest of the brewery necessarily. And the other thing to be said is that when high krausen is done and the yeast starts to settle, then they don't just let it sit in that tank for another couple of weeks. Then it goes to a secondary vessel, which is a sealed vessel, and then it finishes in there. So I think they're probably in those tanks. I don't know for sure, but I would say 
a week to maybe even only four or five days. Yeah. As a home brewer, you're probably not open to just leaving it sitting out in your living room. Not anymore. I don't okay. do it that way anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Sam Smith's is also known. It's been around for a long time. So Tadcaster is not a very big town. I mean, I, I ran on Wikipedia. It's like 6,000 people. But there's actually three different breweries there. Um, there's Sam Smith's, which is the smallest. Then there's John Smith's. And these were in the same family if you go back long enough. And that's a pretty big brewery, I think, owned by Heineken, I believe now. And then there was a Bass Brewery there, but that brewery, which is called the Tower Brewery, now makes Coors. And you might say, why are there three breweries of this size in this little village? I think in part because of the water. So the water there is rich in calcium sulfate. And so I think a little bit like Burton-upon-Trent, people said, hey, this is a good place to make beer. Well, we're sorry, Nick, if you're listening, to be talking about Sam Smith's again. I know you've got... Some opinions. Well, the current owner of Sam Smith, a guy named Humphrey Smith, I think we might be kind if we were calling him a curmudgeon, but I will just direct you to Wikipedia for the list of things that you cannot do in a Sam Smith's pub. It's a great example of beer, but I'm not sure I would marry myself to all of his ideology (laughs) on just general people in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's kind of got some very strong views about what kind of people he wants in his pubs. Having said that, when I lived in Durham, my local was a Sam Smith's pub, and it was really nice to go down there, a place called the Coal Pits, and Mark came and we visited there. I did. I did not curse. I refrained (laughs) the entire time I was there. Yeah, cursing and using your cell phone are two things that can get you kicked out of a Sam Smith's pub. But the other thing that he does do, which I am in favor of, is he's a big proponent of an affordable pint. And the pints there, compared to everywhere else, were pretty affordable. Uh, Probably paid more for this can than you would for a full (laughs) pint over there, which is not normally the case when you're drinking out. Not around here. Well, I think maybe we should head a little further north, so to speak and go into the beer that started the whole Northern Brown tradition, and that would be the Newcastle Brown Ale. This is a beer, of course, as we said earlier, you know, goes back to the 1920s, but probably, you know, we're all of a a similar age, and you guys can remember this from uh, at least the 1990s. I mean, what's your first memory, or can you remember drinking Newcastle Brown Ale back in the day? Absolutely. I mean, this has been around Columbus for a long time, even in the early age of my interest in more European styles, more UK styles, more imported styles, was just about the way to get something that was a little bit more interesting than Budweiser here in the US. And that's where a lot of my homebrewing interest came from, was to emulate some of the styles from across the ocean. Yeah. And like Mark said, uh, as homebrewers, I think... um you know, what we did was we did try to emulate these styles. So these were things that uh, were kind of the only kind of craft beers that we saw on the shelves here in Columbus, Ohio, or wherever you're from here in the United States. But um, so most of the beers that we tried to brew were English brown ales, English pale ales. Um, So yeah, these are very familiar from way back in the day when, you know, craft beer was usually English beer. Also, it's not the most economical thing to homebrew because you can never pay yourself for the labor. 
But to get fresh beer of these styles, that was the only way then. Now, Mark, you were talking about Newcastle Brown Ale as an import, which is, you know, accurate, but actually not entirely accurate in the modern day. And maybe we should talk a little bit about the sort of evolution of this brewery and even this beer. Yeah. Now, when Jim and I were getting it back here in Columbus in the late 80s, early 90s, it was all imported. Yes. However, I was surprised to hear, Pat, now Lagunitas is making Newcastle here in the U.S. That's right. I mean, if you go back to the beer we remember from our youth, a couple of things stand out. One that was obvious at the time. I mean, it used to come in a clear bottle, right? It was always in a clear bottle. But the other thing, which I didn't know at the time, but I've subsequently learned, is actually they used to put, you know, caramel food coloring in Newcastle brown ale. So, you know, in some ways you'd say, wow, it wasn't very craft. <laughs> you got, For uh, sure. You know, this clear bottle with the caramel food coloring in it. Um, but that stopped in, I think, uh, not that long ago. If I remember correctly reading it, maybe in 2015 or something like that. Okay. But anyway, the whole history of this brewery, in 1960, Newcastle merged with Scottish brewers, a company called Newcastle and Scottish. Okay. And that persisted until, I think, in 2010, Heineken bought that brewery. So then Newcastle became part of Heineken. And I have to say, in 2017-18, when I was uh, up there in the Northeast, I didn't see a lot of Newcastle. First of all, it's not brewed there anymore. Yeah. Uh, Even then, they stopped brewing it there. For a while, it was brewed at the John Smith Brewery in Tadcaster, across the street from the Sam Smith Brewery. And then I think they were brewing it at the main Heineken facility in the Netherlands. And then in 2019, Lagunitas, also owned by Heineken, started brewing the Newcastle Brown Ale for distribution in North America. That's really interesting. And also that as a beer that probably Jim and I tried to homebrew back in the day that is now made here in the U.S., that's an interesting turn. And we're going to get a lot fresher beer when this is brewed here in the United States using the the same recipe. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a win all the way around. This beer, by the way, is 4.7%. So the Sam Smith's was 5%, if I'm not mistaken. So we're kind of still at this, what would be considered actually kind of a strong beer in the UK. And in fact, if you go to Newcastle, and this has not changed, if you were to go to certain neighborhoods in Newcastle on a Friday or Saturday evening, you would find a lot of people really enjoying life, uh, and they might be talking in ways that are quite difficult to decipher, and they would call this a brune, a nuki brune, you know, and I, I saw one thing I was reading about this, I don't know this firsthand, I just read it on the internet, but there was somebody from Newcastle saying, you know, because it's stronger than your standard English beer, a few brune to go to the moon, you know, and this was a kind of a saying, you know, get you, get you um, inebriated a little bit faster than, let's say, an English mild. Well, the Newcastle brought us practically to America because it was made in probably Chicago. But now we're coming all the way, U.S., capital city, Columbus, Ohio. We're going to have a Stone Fort Oat Brown Ale from Seven Sun. Oh, yeah. I'm going to start off by saying the nose on this, 
So you just get a blast of malt, mm-hmm. just the body, the mouth feel. There's just a really nice frothy head. And already just after two sips, the lacing on the glass is super evident. So this is why I get this beer every single time I go to the pub at Seven Sun. It's got a lot of like melanoidin character, I think, as well. Yeah, but a lot of toffee, a lot of uh, caramel and biscuit in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's the most toffee caramel forward beer that we've had so far. Seven Sun has been making this beer since the very beginning, as far as I know. And it's kind of like one of their flagships. And, you know, kudos to them for sticking with it. I don't know exactly how well it moves, but I'm glad that I can get this beer on the shelves. One thing to be said is it's an oat brown ale, which implies that they use oats in the grist. Yeah. Which I always like that. I mean, always lends a nice something extra to the mouthfeel and gives a good head retention. Still has good clarity, really, you know. Yep, Not no, quite definitely. as clear as a Sam Smith's, I would say, and maybe just a little bit darker, but nice head retention, good lacing. It's a really uh, handsome beer. Some of the breweries, uh, you know, they're, you know, IPA's king um, in the hazy IPA. All the, all the young people want the hazy IPAs, but um, I have heard, and I listen to a lot of podcasts, of course, this one being my favorite, I have heard on a lot of podcasts and interviews with breweries across the nation that are kind of bringing back these older styles, and and they seem to be surprised, even the brewers and owners are surprised that, you know, people come back asking for them. I mean, it's kind of interesting. We might go from there back to, you know, let's say the late 1980s, early 1990s, and you think about the craft beer scene. You know, if you went to a brew pub, it's pretty common there would be a brown ale on, right? What would be the typical lineup, would you say, at a brew pub in 1992 or whenever when you started brewing. Yeah, you'd have uh, uh, some kind of amber, a pale ale. You'd have a brown ale. That might have even been before you had the IPAs up there. You yeah. know, IPAs might have came out a little bit later than that. Yeah, you might have been lucky to see an IPA, but it would have been an emulation of like a British IPA. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about the brew pub era. You know, when I think of this, I think of a pub with dark wood and maybe a cask pull in the room. And that's yeah. something in America that I think the modern tap room is not quite the brew pub that we knew back then. Yeah. Well, and I think that brew pub idea was then emulating the idea of an English pub. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Whereas I think that thread has not run through to a modern tap room. Looking back a little bit, one thing we haven't mentioned is we haven't mentioned Pete's Wicked Ale. Oh, yeah. Right? Remember that back in the early days, the craft breweries tended to have like one style. They're like, this is what we do, right? So, you know, Sam Adams, that was a Vienna lager. Mm -hmm. You know, in the early days, Sierra Nevada was mostly all pale ales. I lived out in the West. You know, when I was in Oregon, uh, Widmer was all, you know, Hefeweizen and and there was Pete's Wicked, which was a brown ale, right? Yeah, I think Pete's Wicked relied a lot on heavy marketing and timing. And I myself read the For Pete's Sake book. It just timed out right. And then I think that collapse of American craft brewing in that time would have been in the late 90s. Kind of slimmed that back a little bit. There was a correction in the market, you might say. Sure. And uh, they were contract brewing, I think, from... All the way, as far as I know. Although, actually, I don't know. I didn't read the book. Yeah, mostly and not so dissimilar from Sam Adams right. as well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, maybe the lesson is Sierra Nevada bet on pale ales and IPAs, and that seemed like that was a good bet, right? Yeah, and also to note, though, Pat, even though they stuck with pale ales, 
they were using local ingredients sure. and they were using the American hops and they really created something that wasn't before. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. And because it was American, I think if you look at the Pete's Wicked or even a Sam Adams, they were trying to emulate a European style in some way. And, uh, you know, and it was a certainly welcome back in the day, but it just didn't have the staying power, the originality. I mean, also, I think the difference between contract brewing and saying, hey, I'm going to do this. I mean, Ken Grossman yeah. was a home brewer. You know, yeah. he built the place kind of cut from a different mold than, say, Jim Cook or Pete Sloshberg of Pete's Wicked. Well, hey, now having the taste of really good fresh beer in my mouth, thank you, Seven Son, for keeping this on. I'm getting pretty thirsty for Jim's homebrew. Yeah, I agree. Well, I hope you enjoy it. Crack that bad boy open. I think you brought a growler, right? Do you have this on tap at your house? Yeah, I do. And this is the same recipe from 2019 that won the Barley's Homebrew Competition. Awesome. Now, this is called Jim's Home... What is the name of this beer, Jim? <laughs> well, I've always had trouble um, coming up with names for beers. So, you know, I always uh, name by style. I call it a Northern English brown. And we were talking about the BJCP style guidelines. The previous version, which I think it was 2008 version, I think, uh, split the brown ales into northern and southern, as you kind of explained they're back the history. Together now, right? Yeah. Now and then, then we talked about you have the mild, you have the English brown, and then you have the brown porter, basically. So this is just an English brown, northern English brown, is what I've always called it. Again, we talked about sod, Sioto, Sioto. Olentangy, Zymer, Zymergy. Oh, oh Darby. Yeah. We're going to have to start like over this. there. So this is the way you do it after four beers. Sioda, Darb, Darby. Si- See? We can't Sioda, do that. Sioda, we'll just, we'll just, yeah. So, be on the outtake. So a little bit of my history with, with this particular <laughs> beer is that, you know, our homebrew club, Sods, has had the British Beer Fest for um, a number of years. And I want to say we're probably... I don't even want to guess because I'm going to be wrong. I know Frank Berkman, if you're familiar with him, started this, this British Beer Fest. It's a competition that our club does, and it's limited to British styles. So, again, we talked earlier about the fact that as early homebrewers, kind of our vision of what a craft beer was, was for the most part British beers because that's the kind of craft beer that we got here in the United States, maybe some Belgians. So uh, Frank had created this competition. I've always participated in that. Every year, uh, you know, I would do a number of British beers, usually just limited to a brown, you know, some bitter and and maybe a porter here and there. So I changed this recipe recently, probably just previous to the Barley's competition in 2019. Did you have an inspiration of a beer that was out there or were you just reading the style guidelines and saying... I can envision what I want in my head. How did you come up with the inspiration for this beer? Yeah, traditionally, I would go from the Brewing Classic Styles book. That's a Jamil Zanishef book, along with John Palmer. Um, I've had it for many years, which is getting to be kind of an older book now, but it was a little bit of a dictionary of styles, if you will. Mm-hmm. You could always refer to that as uh, you know, getting an example of a recipe for a particular style. So I, I follow that quite a bit. But for this recipe, I just kind of, you know, 
the more I learned about malts and started to understand them a little bit, I thought I would just kind of tweak it up and kind of go with what I imagine, you know, should be changed as far as my palate, my sure. experience. Yeah. And this is a pretty complex malt bill. Looking at your recipe, you've got seven different kinds of malts in this. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some might say complex, some might say muddled. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, I've heard the, the rule of thumb is, you know, keep it simple, stupid. But, you know, for this, I just started to add certain things and thought that that might be interesting in this recipe. And this is what it's become. It's got excellent clarity and a nice head retention. I mean, the clarity is comparable to the Sam Smith's, I think. It's a little darker. Now, before we get into the malts, seeing how clear the beer is, what's your choice of yeast here? So this is a White Labs WLP002, which is the... Um, I think they just call it the English ale yeast. So. Yeah, it's a classic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you think about the different malts here, I'm kind of curious how many iterations this beer has gone through. And did you start with something that had fewer ingredients? Or, I mean, how did you hone in on this particular combination? Well, it was obviously a, a less ingredients or malts than what I have now. But, you know, of course, when you um, think of English beer, you're going to start with a, um, a Maris Otter as your base malt. You know, in this particular beer, it's like 66% Maris Otter, uh, Muntins. You know, that's something that comes straight out of the UK. And then you're going to have some caramel malt that says caramel 40, a little bit of chocolate malt, some chocolate 350, special roast. And some of the other things that I kind of messed around with, I added a little victory malt in here, about 4% and some aromatic malt. And I thought that might be interesting in this particular beer. In just about every British beer that I do in particular, it does have a lot of carapils. So it has a full pound in a five-gallon batch. That's like 8% carapils. And, and carapils will help you out with that mouthfeel, that head retention. It's got a nice refined flavor. I mean, it's all blended together. I think actually, Jim, in your humble way of saying, you could say complex or you could say muddled. I like that it's one thing and it just kind of has all the breads in that character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I will say, it, yeah, with all these specialty malts that are in here, it does benefit from a little age. So if, um, if you drank this beer right out of the chute and it's um, you know just two weeks old, I think you're going to find that a little bothersome all, a little bit cloying all those those malts in there but uh after it sits for you know maybe six weeks on tap you know just gets better and better it's a little bit like a chili or something like that there's sometimes in food where they're you know all the ingredients have to round off and mm -hmm. kind of meld together a melange we might say in the not that's not very british in the <laughs> anyway but enough with that it has that underlying breadiness that I got with the Sam Smiths, but I'm not sure that I've quite gotten on the other beers we've had so far. I mean, Mark put it well when he talked about all the breads. There's just this kind of complexity of things you can't name. Like you said, there's special roast malt in here, but I can't taste anything roasty, but it gives it an underlying kind of subtle subconscious kind of hint in that direction. All the ingredients, they work together really well. You know, you're talking about letting this age a little bit, Jim. This isn't a hazy IPA. Mm -hmm. This is something that can sit around in the keg yeah. for a while or bottle. And actually, a slight amount of oxidation isn't going to hurt this beer. I would actually find just having a little bit more caramel note, you're not going to be mad about it. Yeah, yeah. I had likely in 2019 made this beer for our British Beer Fest, which would have been 
you know, February, March, and then, you know, had that in a bottle for Angelo's Barley's competition, which would have occurred, you know, a couple months later. Yeah. So the timing was real good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is a great time to say that Barley's is now accepting entries for the very competition that you won, Jim. Yeah. And if you're a home brewer, you get until the 21st of May to get those in. And then you'll want to go back for the afternoon with the brewers. That'll be on June 5th, starting at 1 p.m. in Brucadia, upstairs from Barley's. And we plan to be there. And we should not fail to say that if you go to afternoon with the brewers, you're going to be able to have your beer on, right? Because one of the perks of winning this competition is you get to go down with Angelo, brew your beer on the Barley's system, and that's going to be on tap at Barley's, right? Yeah, Angelo has invited me to come brew at Barley's with him and uh, his assistant brewer, Courtney. So I'm looking forward to that. Not sure what to expect. I've offered my labor fully. I don't know if he wants me to carry bags of grain down the steps or anything, but I think if you said that out loud, he should exploit it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you want to you want to live a day in the brewery. Yeah. So, yeah, looking forward to that. I remember reading in various things I was looking at about how to brew brown ales, someone saying that adding chocolate malt is actually kind of a trick to get the nut flavor in there. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you thought about that. I don't know if you wanted to get like a nutty kind of flavor in there. Well, um, traditionally, and we're talking about the early days of brewing this beer in, in England, that they used a brown malt as their base malt. So as time has gone on, base malts have become lighter and lighter. Uh, brown malt was not always available to us as home brewers. Uh, <clears throat> traditionally, you use that base brown malt. But since we couldn't get that, you know, you have to kind of build that flavor right. with the specialty malts. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's absolutely true. And we talked about the development of porters back in the January podcast a little bit. And yeah, all the malt used to be brown malt. And it was, from what I've heard, you know, a little bit varying quality, kind of inhomogeneous in some ways. And we had a bit of a discussion on brown malt when we had a former Barley's Homebrew competition winner on, A.J. Zanuck, when we talked about Baltic porters. You know, when people realized, actually, they can make pale malt, and it, it was just way more attenuative. I mean, there were a lot of advantages to using pale malt. They said, okay, we're going to go that way, and then brown malt kind of fell out of favor. So now, to get that same kind of brown color, you know, you've got to use the specialty malts. And that's actually not a new thing, because if you even think about a beer like Guinness, they're using mostly pale malt, but they're using that roasted barley to get that dark, dark color. And, you know, and some of those coffee-like flavors. You know, you mentioned AJ. It's kind of interesting. He was definitely the individual that got me to join Sods. And it's kind of funny. I met him when I was in college and we worked at a, um, a video store together. And it was on Grandview Avenue. It was called Cinema TV. It had to have been about 1988 or something to that yeah. effect. But I always say that I would see him once a year after that. <laughs> and we would see maybe like at a, uh, you know, Barley's 2, what is Smoked House now? And I'd say, hey, you still brewing beer? And he'd go, yeah, I'm brewing. Yeah, it's like, I'm brewing beer too. And and uh, he said, you should join this club. And he's, I'm nowhere good enough to be joining some kind of homebrew club. <laughs> and then finally, it's like, okay, where's the next meeting? And I met him. I came to the first meeting that I ever went to was at Gordon Beersh. And at that time, Frank Berkman was the president, yeah. along with uh, Chris Altamont, was the vice president at that point. So you were gone at that point. Yeah. I mean, 
I wasn't out of the picture. I just wasn't going to homebrew club yeah. meetings. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they talked about you when I, you know, when they got up and they said, you know who isn't here right now? Mark Richards. <laughs> I'm only afraid of what they might say about me. It's okay. <laughs> but another interesting story is I realized as I was driving here to your studio, yeah. Mark, is that you're about 500 feet away from the winemaker shop. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. The winemaker shop, as I knew it back in the time when I started home brewing, was inside an old theater uh-huh. on the other side of North Broadway. In that time, that was where I sourced all of my ingredients for my home brews. Yeah. I remember it being there. And when I was in college, uh, my roommate said to me at one point, hey, I was up High Street and there's this winemaker shop up there and they have a sign in the window that says, make beer at home, home right. brew supplies sold here. And he said, we got to go up and check that out. And I said, uh, all right, we can do that. I don't I don't believe that at all, that you can make <laughs> beer at home. I mean, we came in and we walked through the door. We stood in the middle and we did a 360 and we didn't even know where to start, what yeah. questions to ask, and we walked straight out the door. <laughs> so that was a thing that always stayed with me. It's like, yeah, I really want to figure out this making beer at home. So yeah, um, after that, you know, like I said, I started in 1990, and I lived in a guy's house that had, he had a four-bedroom house. He was recently divorced, and he wanted to keep his house, so he had four strangers living in his four bedrooms. <laughs> wow. Three other strangers plus him, <laughs> and I asked him one day, I was like, I want to try this beer-making thing in your kitchen. Is that okay? And he said, sure. So yeah. as homebrewers, I think we know uh, you know, how messy an extract batch mm. on the kitchen stove can be. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah, you don't want any boilovers in the kitchen yeah, at especially, all. you know, in a kitchen of a guy who owns a house that you don't know very well. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's a good story. That's a good story. Well, they say that three is the magic number, but we're moving on to beer five. Hey, come on. We owe it to the listeners to explore the world of brown ales in a proper way. We're still staying in Ohio. And this is the Chumalungma, which is the Tibetan term for Mount Everest. I did not know that. This is a beer from Jackie O's. I was looking at their website and they were saying that there was an expedition to Mount Everest in 2007, and afterwards, then they started brewing this beer. A little bit in an Ode to Jim's beer, in classic Jackie O's tradition, they have used a variety of malts. So this beer also features seven different malts, Turo, Aromatic, Chocolate, Crystal 60, Munich, Special Roast, and White Wheat. There are a lot of ingredients that are common to your beer. Yeah. Are you guys familiar with this beer? Have you had this beer in the past? Very much so. This is one of the very rare brown ales from Ohio that graced the grocery store shelves, not including the Seven Sun that we just had. Yeah, this is always a nice one to go back to. Um, like you said, it's been on the shelf for quite a while. Even at a point, you know, I could pronounce the name. <laughs> but uh, it is a beer that I've always enjoyed and my wife always enjoys. So Shout out to Jackie O's for putting it out there. Yeah, for sure. And another thing that I haven't mentioned, but this beer is different than all the beers we've had so far because it features Ohio wildflower honey. Mm-hmm. It's 6.5% also, which is by far the strongest beer that we've had so far today. It's a honey. Kicks it up. Mm-hmm. Now, what about the bitterness? Do, do you have those stats there? 
You know, they didn't give the bitterness, but I do perceive it to be more bitter than any beer we've yeah. had so far today. I can tell you that the hops are Northern Brewer and Willamette. Okay. I would say from the taste and the finish, you get a little bit more bitterness in the yeah. end there. Yeah. And that's why I say this is probably a little more of a, an American brown ale. Yeah, I completely think this is an American take on the brown ale. I probably should, before we end this episode, give a shout out to my brother-in-law, Steve, back in Idaho, who is a big brown ale fan. And, you know, he has a variety of them, but probably the one that you can always count on finding in Steve's fridge is the Moostrel by Big Sky Brewing. That's a great beer. And, and that's a classic example of the style. Um, out there in Idaho, too, you have... Grand Teton Brewing, which is a fantastic brewery, and they made a beer for a long time that's called ESB, which confusingly stands for Extra Special Brown Ale. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's really a a fantastic beer, and it won medals at the GABF. If you go to Telluride, Telluride Brewing has the Face Down Brown, and then Cascade Lakes, which is an Oregon brewery, I think they're based out of Bend, they have a beer that's called 20-inch brown, which is a reference to a brown trout. Always a little bit confusing because brown trout is not really very brown. But anyway, um, this is not a fishing show, so we're not going to go there. But it does strike me that if you go to mountain resort towns, you have a much higher probability of finding a good brown ale than you would in uh, the flatlands of the Midwest. Yeah, it seems like a a brown ale would do quite well for those that, uh, you know, like to put on their uh, hiking shoes and head up the hillside. I mean, it's sessionable to an extent and goes well with food, good Mm -hmm. around the campfire. Yeah, hard to go wrong with a brown ale. Well, kudos to the Barley's Homebrew Competition. By the time this airs, there'll still be time for that to get on. So Mm -hmm. I want to encourage everyone to go down on June 5th for Afternoon with the Brewers and have a pint of Jim's fabulous brown ale. And you're going to be there, are you not, Jim? I I intend to be there, yes. So you can chat with the brewer and have a great time. And it'll be on for a while. But see you all at Barley's on June 5th. Sounds good to me. Jim, thanks so much for bringing your homebrew I'm not going to try to slight anybody else's beer that we drank, but it may be my ranking favorite. Well, I'm sitting here, so that that makes me happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Guys, Cheers. Thanks. Cheers, mate. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Jim. Thanks for coming on. <laughs>